Welcome to the 13th episode of Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Martin J. Logan. Martin, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Thanks, Proctor, and I'm happy to be here. Geez, since we're talking about Erlang, I'll stick to that part of the bio. I started doing Erlang programming back in, I think, 1999, so way early. There was a paper by Osterhout, I think, geez, maybe 1996, that I think the basic premise was something like, Threads are too complicated for the human mind to comprehend. And that certainly resonated with me. I'd been doing a bunch of P-threads work and C programming, and it was just ridiculous. You'd think you'd have it right, but you never felt fully confident in the system, and then it, sure enough, freeze up on you for some unknown reason three months later. And so it was actually my boss, Hal Snyder, at the time that found Erlang and introduced it to me. And I was, I think, just out of college. So probably the lowest paid employee at the company. So it was reasonably easy to give me a project like this because if it was a total failure, they didn't really spend too much cash on it. So I dove into Erlang and at the time there was nothing, just no books. There was a little bit of documentation on the web, but it was very hard to learn. You couldn't Google for something. I don't think maybe Google was there. I don't know, but you couldn't find anything on search engines. And so after muddling through the docs on the Erlang.org site for quite a while, I ended up putting together a first version of this rather complicated proxy to take a complex protocol from Targus and turn it into UDP packets that got blasted out over the network. And funny enough, it ended up having this, after working the initial kinks out of it, an incredible amount of uptime. And I believe the second version of that thing is still running today. So I don't know what that's 15 years later, something to that effect, maybe 14 by the time that was written. So that got me really started on Erlang. And then from there, I wrote a couple large projects. The first call detail record collection system on a SIP network. There was nothing commercially available at the time. And then some of the least cost routing system that ran on the SIP network. And you know, this is telecom systems. And it was hundreds of machines. And this thing kind of sat across all of them and made sure that our calls got routed properly and that we were tracking all of the craziness that was going on with these IVR conversations across tons of boxes and being able to bill accurately for it. Some really challenging products and a lot of fun. And then, geez, from there, where did I go? I went to FutureSource or eSignal and built a pretty large airline system to do financial charting for commodities and options. Some very interesting stuff there. Really got heavily into OTP at that time. That was probably 2004, maybe 2003. So that was full-time airline for, I guess I've been doing full-time airline since about 2000 and all the way through that job. And after that, went and did a startup that failed, a little bit of airline there, and then got to Orbitz. And Orbitz was a lot of fun. Actually, right now, there is still the distributed system there runs through kind of this lookup service. So all the calls across the main site network run through this distributed name lookup server that's actually written on Erlang that myself and some other sharp guys over at Orbitz put together. So that was a lot of fun. And it was about that time that I got into this Earlware project, which was pretty interesting. I had a build system that I had taken from my first job and it was all make. So I decided to open source that because it was really useful to have kind of a common consistent build system. So I released this build system for airline projects called, what did I call it? OTP base or something like that. And a week later, Eric Merritt, the co-author on my book calls me and he says, damn it, man. I didn't even know him. He's like, damn you, you released this a week before I was about to release my build system. And he says on email, maybe we should work together. And I thought, sure, he sounds like a nice guy. So we started talking on the phone and from there, we ended up building the package manager Faxian and a build system called Synon and just a whole bunch of other stuff. And we started Airline Camp together. And it was just kind of in doing all that, kind of all that mayhem that we sort of came into this book writing. And we really wanted to share our approach to Airline, which really sort of came from the Airline Camp conference series. And that was we felt that OTP was the heart of Erlang, that doing plain old Erlang and then learning OTP later as if it was some sort of advanced topic is backwards. And that instead, it's OTP that gives you the structure so that even if you don't know all of the functional programming and distributed systems and concurrency-oriented goodness, 
that the smart guys like Wolf Vigor and Joe Armstrong and Mike Williams and all these guys understand, you could still program an OTP and it gave you enough of guardrails so that you could write a system that was still really fault tolerant, easily distributable, so on and so forth. So we wanted to take all that knowledge that we'd gained over a bunch of years of doing distributed systems and writing them in Erlang and just put it into a book. And that's kind of how that started. I left Orbitz a few years ago, went and worked at Amazon for a couple of years, no Erlang there, and still dabbling, doing the Erlang camps. And then now I'm back here in Chicago with a company called Guaranteed Rate. And the mission there is to really build the world's first, I think, large scale, fully automated digital mortgage, which is a mission that's uh, pretty near and dear to my heart, being a reluctant real estate owner myself. Is that good enough for you? Sounds like there's a lot for us to unpack throughout the episode here. Sure. So sounds like it's a lot of good, interesting background that we have plenty of talking points about. You kind of mentioned you got into it back in 99 when you were first starting out. Yeah. Aside from just finding the documentation tricky to navigate and because you said there wasn't a lot of it and going back to the early days of when it was Lycos, Excite, and maybe Yahoo, yeah, maybe Google at that point, as you said, how did you find the change of just thinking about the things in Erlang? Oh, man. And just that transition of thought from getting into that based off your previous experience. That's a really good question. And the funny thing was, I've always been a bit of a contrarian. And so object-oriented programming didn't make a lot of sense to me, even in college. I just, I, I always, the phrase, it's just like the real world, and that's why we do it, always struck me as funny. Similarly, this latest design craze, or maybe not quite the latest, but over the last couple of years, people have been designing interfaces, for example, on their mobile phones to look like things in the real world, like a drawer or leather or real button and so on. And that always struck me as funny too. Now, these things in the computer are not like the real world. They are things in a computer that exist in circuitry and don't weigh anything. And it just always intuitively struck me as kind of a naive or oversimplification of things. And just this idea that we make these laws that data and functions will always be mashed together, like just fundamentally, why always? Sometimes I really just want to focus on the data elements and I don't care to wrap them up and only get at it via functions as if that for some reason is always more correct. Sometimes I just want to deal with the raw data and that makes sense. And it didn't make a lot of sense to me. And then The one big thing that I heard before I got into Erlang was this contextual argument, which is sometimes in the real world, you have a shoe. And the shoe, if we translate that into an object, has the method tie. Okay, great. But now what if I'm angry and I want to throw the shoe at you? It doesn't have the throw method. or It just struck me that you end up making these premature generalizations about things, saying that this is an object and this is how it's going to be used. But in reality, we don't exactly know how it's going to be used. And so sort of making these assumptions about it, not allowing people free enough access to the actual data just didn't work for me. So that's a long preamble to getting to the answer to your question, which is how did I adjust? I think pretty easily. I was immediately just obsessed with this thing. So once I got the sense of I'm looking at a module, of what I now understand is poorly written Erlang code. I'm looking at a module that spawns maybe three processes or three actors. It's not even poorly written Erlang code. It's poorly written anything actor-based. And so once I kind of got the hang of reading the code and knowing what was happening concurrently and then the idea that I could pass messages, and then the first time I passed messages between two machines and I didn't have to set up all kinds of crazy AF, INET, SOP, adder, any, like all the stuff I was used to and specify specific IP addresses and so on and so forth. Like I was pretty much sold. So after that, I would say I perhaps neglected some of the work I should have been doing over on the seaside so that I could dig harder into the airline stuff. So it's definitely a transition. It's definitely different thinking about things from an actor-based perspective, but I kind of suspended disbelief and just jumped right into it. And the reality, I think the lesson to be learned there is that 
you can make the transition as hard as you want or as easy as you want. But if you just kind of let go and take it for what it is and kind of when in Rome, do like the Romans do and just let go of some of the old habits and think concurrently, then Erlang's pretty straightforward. It's kind of funny because you mentioned that it was all the object-orientedness, but as I dig into Erlang and hear other people talk about it who've got a lot more experience than I do, the common thread that I seem to hear is it's probably one of the most OO languages out there because you're going with pure message passing and pure messages as the means of communication between different processes, and they're all individual objects in the sense of the way object-oriented programming was supposedly described by Alan Kay with cells communicating to each other, with knowing nothing about the outside world except just a message that they send out and someone else can receive. Yeah, that's actually, you know, it's funny. That is a really good point. Processes encapsulate state, and then they allow you to manipulate that state through functions, which is, at its heart, sort of that core central Alan Kay idea about object-oriented programming. And in fact, in college, my absolute favorite programming language that I'd worked with was Smalltalk. It's the sort of rigor that goes behind these really purely object-oriented programming languages that kind of force you to encapsulate everything in a class. And back in the day, particularly, you had getters and setters for anything that you wanted to get. And so just the amount of syntax and the force feeding of you have to know exactly what this thing does and how everybody else is going to use it, that just didn't relate very well for me. So I think, yeah, in its purest form, managing state and things that communicate with one another via messages is a pretty beautiful concept. I just don't think that most, yeah, I think there's more to most modern object-oriented programming languages that just make it not quite as nice as that. Yeah, I get that digging into the functional programming that I've been doing. The other thing that seems like it would have really caught your attention, and I don't know if it was at that point, was when you were talking about the protocol exchange of that targets to UDP protocol. Yeah. Did you have the binary pattern matching back then? Because that seems like that's something very beautiful with those kinds of problems from what I've seen described of, here's how you take apart a like an MP3 header to figure out what, who the title is and who the author is or the TCP IP header. Absolutely. So by, it was two things that made that really nifty. It was binary pattern matching as well as there's an OTP behavior called GenFSM, which is the Generic Finite State Machine. And it was a notion of a finite state machine. And if you think about packets, if, if you think about you know potentially lossy protocol coming over the wire that you've got to deconstruct, it's really just a big old state machine that things are coming in correctly and then you might miss one or get something out of order and you've got to deal with that and you know you bounce into a different state and things go too badly awry you're in a termination state that's negative and if things are going well you end up in a good one and so implementing that via this genfsm was really kind of an elegant fun solution and then the binary pattern matching is phenomenal pattern matching in general if you're not used to it you don't know what you're missing or if you haven't used it you don't know what you're missing it's it's really quite something because it focuses you more on the structure of the data that you're dealing with, and it's so very declarative. So when you read the code, it's not sort of if this function result equals this other function result or this number or this. It's kind of if you have a tuple coming in and there's three elements, you see exactly all of those three elements. The variables that are associated with them are named appropriately so that you kind of understand what the full data structure is. Whereas if you're doing it more in a less declarative, more functionally oriented way, you're saying, give me the second element in this tuple and then compare that with this other thing. And it's just so much harder to read than if you can see it all laid out in front of you. And then the idea of doing that with binaries was just such a novel concept and so obvious after you see it, but absolutely powerful. Yeah, and just to touch on the pattern matching, for anybody who's not familiar with it, it's not just pattern matching, but it's what seems to make it especially powerful is it's pattern matching with data binding as well, because it binds those values based off the pattern match, right? Right, right. and the binary pattern matching gives you kind of adjectives that you can use, modifiers that you can use to 
match X number of bytes or bits, even if you're going that low, bind that to a particular variable. And then, so for example, if you have a packet that's got a four byte header on it, but you don't know how long the body is, with a very declarative, beautiful pattern, you could rip off the four byte header, bind that to a variable, and then bind, quote, the rest to some other variable that you would deal with later as you're at kind of your application level parsing. And you would do that in a way that somebody reading the code would see, oh, there's the header, it's four bytes, and there's the tail or the rest of the packet, and it's in this variable, as opposed to doing that with a bunch of functions where it just is a lot more opaque. So you mentioned that you were able to stay in Erlang yeah, all the way through. How was that transition in was that just you got in early enough and was able to find companies? Or are there actually a lot of companies that are using Erlang that people just don't necessarily hear about from what you've seen in your history with working in Erlang? I guess it's a little bit of luck, a little bit of craziness, and just a lot of passion for the language. So there was not a lot of craziness. I was at this company called Vale early in my career, a really fantastic, amazing place. The owner there just manages to hire absolutely brilliant people. So I got really lucky where I started out and worked with a bunch of just incredibly high IQ, great programmers. As I got really heavy into this airline thing, at Vale, Airline got a little bit of a bad name, I think, because we pushed it so hard as programmers. It wasn't just me. There was a few of us. But management was particularly worried about whether they would be able to find anybody to maintain this if we left because there were just no airline programmers at the time. It was a brand new language or brand new to the public. And so it got a bit of a bad name and I just couldn't stop. And plus, I was a young guy. I really cared more about kind of my own learning and so on than I did about the products. I think a lot of junior programmers go through that phase. And so when I finally quit and I told the owner who I still respect a lot to this day. I said, hey, I'm leaving to go to this other place and do more Erlang. He just looked at me like I was crazy. I think he actually told me that I was crazy and that I was ruining my career. And I ended up going to work with this guy named Eric Newhouse, who I still keep in touch with to this day. And I think is semi-active in the Erlang community even now. We had kind of found each other on the Erlang mailing list. So in the early days of Erlang, I learned Erlang through the documentation, but more so through the mailing list. And it was the mailing list that really got me involved with the community of people at Erlang and just really made Erlang almost feel like a family thing. I'd go to all the different Erlang conferences and I would see people that I saw year after year, John Hughes and Joe Armstrong and Will Vigor and these guys that are just sort of staples in the community. See them, it's like, hey, every year you go and visit your buddies from the Erlang community. The mailing list was just filled. There was not a single flame war on the mailing list. It was just this wonderful community of smart people that wanted to learn and teach. And so I got on there primarily to learn a lot. And then over a period of, say, a year and a half or so, I started to really gain my own confidence and knowledge in programming this way. And so I started being the one really teaching a lot. And this guy, Eric Newhouse, found me on there. And it just so happened that of all the you know, there were two companies in Chicago doing Erlang. And what the chances of that are, I think there were probably 15 companies in the U.S. at the time doing Erlang, and two of them happened to be in Chicago. So he hired me away from Vail, and then we did a bunch of years of just really fantastic work in Erlang. We also worked in a crazy language called K that most people are probably not familiar with. If you've never heard of it and you like languages, go look it up. It's just interesting and for its own sake. And then we had a little Java mixed in there as well, but it was a great situation. So it was just me saying, hey, I love doing this stuff. Erlang is definitely a power tool. Functional programming is a power tool. This is what I want to learn, and the rest of it be damned, like, I'm going this way. So you mentioned the mailing list, and I kind of try and keep an eye on the mailing list, and it looks pretty tame mostly. It looks like there's a few people who are newer to Erlang who have some of the questions of, I guess, more based off non-historical things. Yeah. One of the ones I can think of recently was, should we rename what OTP actually stands for? That's been a thread that has gone on since I can remember, because the open telecom platform is really meaningless. Yeah, and not to necessarily delve into that thread, but more of along those lines of, now that the language is growing in popularity... What have you seen how the community of Erlang has changed and evolved with that and 
the, I guess, the influx of people that Erlang seems to be getting within the past, what, five, four or five years that I've been hearing about it more with things like Facebook starting to use it for its chat server, and you've got CouchDB and React and RabbitMQ and all these other things which are built on Erlang as well. Yeah, that, and I'm not going to, it's definitely changed. The mailing list, I'm not active on anymore at all. It's got a lot bigger, and it was this community when I was in it, and then it got rather large. So I ended up just, maybe it's a personality thing or whatever, I just ended up not participating as much in the mailing list. And I think the other thing is, there were just so many other outlets for it. And so I ended up in different groups, going to conferences all the time, being on email with people that I knew kind of point-to-point, chats, IRC, all kinds of stuff. The community, it's actually all these people coming into the community was one of the reasons that Eric and I really wanted to write this book. I'm not going to mention the projects, but they're in the list that you mentioned. And this is no knock on them. These guys learned Erlang and started coding and made some great things. But when I look through the code of some of these projects wanting to use them, the code was quite bad, really structured in a way that was very much not kind of the, quote, Erlang way. No real use of OTP. A lot of kind of naked, this is a <laughs> naked banging, for lack of a better term. It's when you when you take a message, the bang operator is how you send a message in Erlang. And if you take a message and you just send it kind of like that, as opposed to using one of the OTP functions to wrap that bang operator in a way that makes it more readable, that makes it more dynamic, that makes it more fault tolerant, depending on what you're doing. If you're just doing that naked stuff, there's a few problems with it. One of them is your protocol tends to leak outside of your module. It's hard to tell where the messages are being sent and received. So your code becomes, you get spaghetti code effect within Erlang. There was no use of OTP. There was rough use of supervision. There was a lot of stuff that was in OTP that was kind of rewritten, but just the style was bad. And so, you know, we thought, hey, wow, there's some smart people doing some great things. And this code is not good. We think that people just don't understand OTP because the documentation is so bad. And we've got a nice book out there, super exciting when Joe Armstrong released his book, and I've read it twice. But that book doesn't cover any OTP. And in fact, Joe Armstrong is not a big fan of OTP. So he wouldn't cover it. And so we thought, well, in order to kind of complement this, we need to release something that teaches people how to write real production quality airline code. And the code in all those projects now is quite solid and looks good. And I don't know if I contributed at all to it, or they just got better as they went along. But I hope I contributed to some people getting better. So I guess on that note, let's kind of talk about the book a little bit. Sure. So you've kind of covered into, I guess, just with that, you covered why you felt the book was important. Yeah. What was, I guess, some of the motivations of taking the routes you did in the book? One of the things I'm thinking of is, at work we have a little bit of Erlang, so I managed to get an Erlang user group started. Nice. At work for the Metroplex down here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and my work is the sponsor of it at this point. We've had a couple conversations with people talking about the difference between the different styles of, well, let's go in and talk about how you send messages and all the caveats of what happens and kind of build up all the things you don't think about that means, oh, here's why you would use OTP versus your book kind of took the opposite stance and said, I'm not even going to tell you why you should use OTP other than you should. Right. So what was kind of the driving force between that and just saying, look, when you come in, you're just going to just, just accept it as a given that it's OTP. Right. And if you want to learn why, you can go learn why later, but we're not going to even cover all the caveats and what o- everything OTP gives you except use it. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a number of reasons for that. One was there was already a book on airline and If you read an entire book on Erlang and then you go and try to code some production quality Erlang code, the level of fault tolerance that you achieve will not be much better than what you achieved with any other random functional programming language. And that's, you're missing, you're leaving a lot on the table when you do that. 
The other thing is I started snowboarding like 25 years ago and I studied martial arts for a long time and all of us have learned things. And when you get in and you start learning something that's got many levels of competence to it, you don't typically start out at kind of the hardest level. You start out and when the teacher's telling you why you do things, he's probably leaving a few things out because you don't need to know yet. Like when you really get the first principles and dig fully down into something, that's when you're at kind of the black belt level. And that's kind of how I look at Erlang. When you're learning this stuff, you don't know all the reasons why you should write code the way you should. You don't understand all of the different concepts behind functional programming. You do not understand all the fallacies of distributed computing. You don't understand why asynchronous systems are preferable to synchronous ones from a fault tolerance perspective. There's a lot of stuff that you just don't know. You don't understand how to create process hierarchies. You don't understand how to make things fault tolerant. You don't understand the idea of reverting back to a known base case in the face of errors. There's just all this stuff you don't know. And so what we thought was, look, we're going to teach you the system that puts the appropriate guardrails around and sets the example for you to write really solid airline code. And then as you're going along, you're going to get curious and you're going to dig in. It's kind of like when you're learning Rails or something to that effect, for those that have programmed Rails here and there. You don't even really need to know Ruby to program Rails. You can get your website up and running and solve the problem and do it in a way that makes sense because the system's so opinionated. And then if you want to get really good at it and you want to go further and you're a curious type of person, then you dig in and you start learning more about Ruby and you start learning why things were done the way they were done and and you become more of an expert. But you shouldn't start at the bottom learning like the fundamental Ruby programming concepts just so you can do Rails. That to me doesn't make as much sense. You want to start with the framework, start with the guide Rails, and then learn to write correct code and then understand the deep reasoning after that. You kind of gave me, when you were first describing the approach of just learning stuff, yeah. you were starting to describe that. You gave me the image of you guys were trying to be Mr. Miyagi <laughs> and the Karate Kid where you're like, here's the proper way to wax the car. Here's the proper way to paint the fence. Use this motion and kind of just ingrain that motion in. Like, don't even care why you're doing this. Just trust me. I know what I'm doing. And then you're going to find out that, oh, wait, now I know how to write an OTP app. That's brilliant. I'm going to use that if you don't mind. It might even come up in the next airline camp. That's a great analogy. It's exactly that. And then later on, Ralph figures out, oh, that's what you're doing with this. Oh, now I get that it fits in. But first he had to just learn some of the rote. And I think if people approached it this way, some of the systems that I mentioned earlier would have been written in ways that allowed them to grow more rapidly, that would have been more fault tolerant, more scalable right from the get-go. And it probably would have saved these folks a lot of work. Yeah, you gave me that image as you were describing the way you guys were approaching it, and it almost gave me that image. Because you guys walk through it, and from what I remember, it, I've gone back to it a number of times, but not really the first chapter. But from what I remember, it was, you guys even just gave a very, very fundamental thing of Erling and said, here's a brief overview of just some of the basics you need to know, but we're going to jump in with OTP pretty much right from the start. Yeah, chapter two. So chapter one was basically a light introduction. Chapter two was basically just a long, here's Erlang in a nutshell, so you can have it, it, you ever heard the term reticular activation? I don't think I have, but why don't you give that for anybody else who hasn't as well? It's kind of like if there's a word that you'd never heard before and then somebody says the word to you, let's say the word is recalcitrant or something to that effect, and somebody says that word and you get the definition of it, and then later on you hear it everywhere. It's because your reticular system in your brain has been activated. It's kind of looking for that word. It's there right in the tip of your brain. And your pattern matching system has been keyed up to look for that pattern now. And so that's why you see it. Or if you buy a certain type of car, and before you never noticed those cars on the road, but now that you own one, you see these Volkswagens everywhere. So it's that sort of thing. So we wanted to give the first chapter to really give a full overview of Erlang in the most intelligible way possible, given the brevity, just so that people would have this stuff in their heads. So that as we were going through and these concepts maybe surfaced here and there, They'd have that reticular system activated. They'd have some points of reference. And then as they did dig deeper, as they got further into some of these topics, they would also, again, have at least a little bit of a basis for their learning. 
Yeah, it seems like you guys cover a good swath of material in that book. And what's not a very long book either, because you guys talk about ETS and using ETS for storage and then go into Amnesia because you started getting into distributed Erlang and then you get into nodes with distributed Erlang and you guys cover a lot yeah, while still being practical and stuff to be able to pull out and roughly a very short book because it's only what, 10 chapters or so? It's 13, but the meat of it, the things you just talked about are really in the first 10. And that was our goal. You really nailed it, which is that practicality. You know, you want to go through, give people practical things they can do. And that really came from teaching. When you teach enough people Erlang, which we've done over the years, you start to learn what people can absorb and what they can't and what's fun for them and what sort of things they can take away and start to do things with. Because at the end of the day, if you can give people something that they can really dabble with and that makes sense to them and that allows them to build something that's not entirely trivial, you're going to give them a real good chance of being able to do something meaty and be able to continue on with whatever it is they've learned. And so we really wanted to focus on giving people something that was accessible and usable in in a non-trivial way. Yeah, and I think it's done a good job with that too, because within the past few months, I've kept going back to that book because for the user group, we're still trying to get it established and it's a smaller community. It's probably about a handful of people outside our our office and then the handful of people inside our office. But to keep it established and keep the monthly pace, I've been doing a little OTP application to walk people through for just a basic chat server. Nice. Using a finite state machine for your states of chats and trying to get the district. And so I'm working through, it's like, okay, now I need to make this just like, I want to demonstrate the fact that Erlang's distributed. And that book has got a lot of good references. This was like, okay, wait, why does ETS failing when I pull up a second node? And then all of a sudden I go back to the book. I was like, oh, wait, you guys cover this. Uh, I forgot about that. ETS only works on a single node. I got to move to Amnesia. Okay, now follow your guys' lead on how do I get it distributed from ETS to Amnesia? Yeah, that was my favorite chat. That's that's my favorite session to teach at Airline Camp, and it was my favorite chapter. It was chapter 11 when we really kind of distributed that whole thing and got kind of the... Dis- when you have a system of applications that is has no special cases in it, a lot of peer-to-peer communication, there's no hard-coded topology. Things can come up and find the resources that they need within the fabric of providers that's out there. Things are loosely coupled and generally very asynchronous. You just have such an unbelievably fault-tolerant, bulletproof system at that point. It's just so much fun to code that way. And Erlang just makes it really easy. And I think it was really, by the end of chapter 11, you sort of had the tools in your hands to really be able to put that together. And that, that just makes, that's really Erlang in a nutshell to me, is just being able to do that. The distributedness of it is really nice. It's one of those things that is like, well, if I learn to structure it right, it does seem very amazing how well you can get away with just doing some very minimal sets of processes or modules. And, like, all that they have to do is very minimal because you've just structured it right. Absolutely. It's called locationally transparent. There's a few things, though. The locationally transparent syntax is one of them that makes writing smaller distributed systems an absolute breeze and then scaling them a breeze. And the other thing that's interesting about that is descaling them. So everybody thinks about, well, I write, generally you're almost forced to write kind of almost microservices to a degree. So you write these applications, and then you combine the applications together into a big release. But the thing about these applications is if you write things right and you leverage locationally transparent syntax, you can take those applications and split them out of a a single release that would be running on a single machine and have one of them running on one machine and another one running on another machine. And without too much deep magic, those things will communicate just fine in either of those situations. It came in really handy once in the past, or a few times in the past, when you have a big distributed system and then you realize, well, if I can split things out very easily and it's all location transparent, then I can bring them back together very easy. And that's really interesting for testing and for integration testing. Writing tests that run across many machines that requires a reasonably complex harness, running the same test on a single machine, much, much easier. 
So it, it definitely lowers the barrier of entry to kind of testing your distributed system in a non-distributed way, but with the same communication semantics. So you get a lot of value out of it. Well, it seems like you, it's even it allows you to have that fully distributed system, but still be distributed without actually being across multiple machines as well. Yep. Instead of having 100 machines, you just have 100 different nodes and Erlang sessions on one machine, and it's all the same. And if that's difficult, then you can take and make one release that has all those applications and run all of those things in a single node. But the communication is still the same as it would be if it was running in different nodes on the same machine or different nodes on many machines. The syntax never changes. Something to kind of think about and process. I'm sure I'll keep coming back to that as well as I kind of review this episode and for editing and then more and listen to it and then take future listens to it. It seems like something that'll at least be another thing for it to sink in further with me, and I'm sure the audience will find that something to chew on as well. I was going to say it's kind of nifty to distribute your system with no if statements to make it possible. So meaning you don't have to have any kind of conditional logic that says, when I'm here locally, do this one thing, and when I'm somewhere else, do this other thing. The locationally transparent syntax makes that distribution possible without if statements. So you also touched on something I had been kind of chewing about, and I wasn't actually sure if it was me trying to pull outside thoughts into Erlang or if it was really something that Erlang kind of thinks about. But you mentioned thinking of them as little microservices. Is that something that you really think is common in the Erlang community to think about is essentially a bunch of these small little service-oriented architectures all built as a single overall bundled application where your processes are almost your small little services? Or is that more of a bad metaphor that people bring in that's not really fitting? I don't think of them as microservices, but this thought that I'll share now is one of the things I think that really was a massive leap in terms of my abilities as an engineer and a programmer. And it was really, it was really thinking about the processes themselves. So decomposing a system into its truly concurrent activities, creating an actor or a process for each one of those concurrent activities, and hiding the protocol that is associated with each one of those actors behind a what we call the the alphabet of that actor behind an interface and then composing my system of many of those actors which could run locally or remotely when i kind of got the hang of coding it really took my systems forward by a long way so microservices is a word that's coming up nowadays that's a little bit reminiscent of this but there's more to it so i don't like the analogy completely but you know What I just said about really looking at the concurrent activities in your system, giving them an alphabet, hiding the protocol within that, within the module that embodies that process, and then thinking of your system as a composition of those actors. And then in Erlang, grouping those in one more level of hierarchy, which is your application. So grouping like processes together in applications, and then composing your system of those applications, which are little services in and of themselves just makes a lot of sense. And it's what enables what we were just talking about, which is run one release with 50 applications or run 10 releases with five apiece, either on the local node or spread those nodes across the network. And they still kind of mesh together the same way on this airline fabric that the distributed airline provides. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was going to actually be a an app metaphor and it seemed like it was kind of trying to bring in something that didn't really fit. Is there good resources for figuring out where those lines are and learning those lines? Because one of the reasons I ask is at work we had a small little Erlang piece and it was actually analyzed and we had some processes when it was really just functions. So we split things off into processes and it's like, well, actually, that's probably just really a function instead of a full-on process. Yeah. So do you have any good kind of tips or resources to point to for finding the right level of granularity? Yeah, you know what? I'm I'm actually 
halfway through a blog entry I'll put out soon, kind of talks a little bit about this architectural approach, which is well known in the airline community. I just don't think it's been written about enough. We talk about it a bit in the book. So you'll notice this term that's thrown around, which are library applications versus active applications. And an active application is an application that has a life cycle. It hooks into OTP. It has an application behavior. It has a supervisor that will come up and run. That supervisor spawns worker processes. They have some life cycle or a lifetime. They work and then they die or they, you know, work forever, whatever the case is. But it's this active thing. It's running. It's living, so to speak. And then a library application is one like standard lib. It has no processes. It's really a number of functions that are there to be evaluated and it's to be used by active applications to do something because a passive application can actually, a library application can actually do anything unless there's a process there running that code. And when you think about architecting it, I'll just give some really simple advice here. And the simple advice is basically what I was just talking about, which is take a look at your system. So let's say, you know, there was a programming quiz and it was interesting and it was given to some OO guys, you know, really hardcore OO programmers. And the test was design a vending machine. How would you design a vending machine? And it was really fun for me to listen to them design it and then contrast how you would design that in an actor-based system. And it's quite different. And so an object-oriented system, you'd think about all the nouns and verbs that you'd have and you start to construct objects for the nouns. And I'm, I'm guessing many people are familiar. In the actor-based system, your mind immediately jumps to, well, what are all the truly concurrent activities in this system? So I've got the thing that accepts the coins and calculates how much money you need to pay and all that kind of thing. Like it's its own thing. It can do what it needs without any external influence. And then you've got sort of the refrigeration system and the robot arm that grabs the pop and so on. And, and so you'd think about each one of those things as being independent, that it could communicate then asynchronously or synchronously with other independent things, but it doesn't need to be sort of wrapped up on them. They don't need to coexist in the same process. So I'm actually having trouble explaining this right now because I'm getting too deep into the analogy. But look at your system, find all the things that are truly concurrent, meaning not dependent on one another, such that their code doesn't have to this thing happens, and this thing happens, and this thing happens, and this thing happens, and they have to be interleaved in that exact order. And split those out into different processes. And that's the very first place that you start. And you also think about how you need to manage your state. But I don't know that that's going to be a little bit harder to describe verbally. Okay. Part of it was to make sure you don't go too fine-grained on your processes as well. Every function call almost becomes a separate process as well and kind of making sure you don't kind of overdo it with processes and everything's a process because processes are cheap when you realize do I really need the function to concatenate two strings together to be its own process kind of thing and you know what the thing is right when you get functional programming you're looking at evaluating expressions right and getting values out of them and in order to concatenate two strings you have to have the two strings and there's kind of a flow of data in that evaluation that ultimately leads you up to some single value at the end of all this computation. And that deals with a certain bit of state. And it's looking at that and trying to figure out what bits of state kind of don't have a lot to do with one another that sort of exist independent of one another, so to speak. And there's some art to it. But when you look at that vending machine, in general, at a high level, what are the things that happen concurrently? Like without digging too deep, what are the big boxes within that system, within the data flow diagram that you might draw for that as you first start to look at it? And look at each one of those things as processes. And then as you go into each one of those systems, you'll start to see other salient concurrent activities that are within each one of those systems. And you might decompose those as well. But you're probably not going to go too much deeper than that in any system that's not ridiculously complicated. If you find yourself going much, much deeper, you're probably overdoing it and parallelizing things actually to the detriment of your performance of the system. Yeah, and that was one of the things we noticed was we were like, oh, wait, we're paralyzing this. We're making these processes 
we're having to wait on going through the message passing and sending messages back and forth when really it's just a function. Right. Right. So I would actually love to talk. You've mentioned it a number of times, but I'd like to kind of go into some details and let everybody know about it. Erlingcamp, can you kind of go over what exactly that is and kind of the format and give some details on that? And we can talk about that for a little bit. Absolutely. So Airline Camp started back in 2010 here in Chicago. And the way it started was, so I had started the Airline User Group here in Chicago, or Chicago Airline User Group, which Garrett Smith is running these days quite successfully. And we had a meetup where we probably had 60 people in the room. And for an airline meetup, 60 people is ridiculous. Like, that's huge. And it had been quite a, a few years of us doing, you know, airline-related stuff in the city. And I think the community really was reasonably sized here. And so I was sitting there with Eric Merritt and I think Jordan Wilberding and Tristan Slaughter. And I said to them, at the end of this user group, we're going to announce that we're having a conference in the fall. And they looked at me like I'd grown a tail. Like, what are you talking about? There's no conference. I was like, there's going to be one. And they just kind of started nodding their heads. And then Eric smiled. And he's like, yeah, there is. Because there was so much enthusiasm in the room and so many people there and, and so many people that really wanted to learn. And it just made, made sense to kind of take it to that next level. And we, we, we thought, we really want to take these people that are just dabbling and see if we can't kind of level them up in Erlang. And so that was the idea. So we, we just announced it after that user group said, hey, you know, we don't have the exact date yet, but a conference is coming in the fall here in Chicago, and we'll keep you guys all posted, and we hope to see you all there. And so we sort of threw the gauntlet down for ourselves, and right after that meeting, we were all excited and kind of nervous, and the four of us got together and said, okay, now we got a job to do. We need to plan this out. And Eric and I had we just come off with, I can't, the ordering of all this stuff gets hazy, but, you know, we really had developed this kind of OTP way of looking at things and actually, I think we weren't finished with the book yet. We were still writing, but we'd really developed kind of the way that we thought about things and, and really wanted to focus on OTP and felt we really could teach people how to get good at this fast. And so we spent all summer, I mean, hours and hours and hours putting together just a lot of material. And we pulled the conference together in October of 2010. We had about 120 people show up and it was it was a blast. We you know just had nothing but positive reviews all the way through. Everybody was pumped. Um, a lot of actually really solid airline programmers kind of got started at that conference, and it spawned a, a number of other other airline camps as well. And basically, the goal was: look, we're going to teach just like the book. We'll show you the essentials of airline in a three-hour period. We'll run you through a bunch of exercises to get you familiar with some of this stuff. And then we're going to dive straight into OTP. And that first one, we did a reasonably good job at it, but got a lot of great feedback. And over the next, what has it been, four years or so now, five years, we've just improved it tremendously. So we've done quite a few of them since then. And right now, I think just in terms of teaching ability and being able to ramp people up on those core OTP concepts without all the fluff that's going to get confusing, we've really distilled it. And we basically teach core essentials of airline through a series of exercises that progressively build in their complexity. People type the entire time. So you're kind of working and learning that entire time and you're sort of forced to do exercises. And then we jump into OTP and teach people about behaviors. So we get some basic gen servers up and running after that, we go into supervision and applications and really talk about how to make something fault tolerant. Following that, we dive into distribution pretty heavily. And that's just a really fun, fun session where you kind of really get to learn what makes a good solid distributed system and how to do it in Erlang and then some of the kind of fun, deep magic that not too many people know about. And then after that, we go into some stuff on eventing, debugging, and then just wrapping your system up in a full release and being able to version it and really get it out into production. And we cover that in two days of very intense, tiring eight to nine hour days. But we, uh, 
we mixed that up with a, a really solid after party afterwards, which is one of my one of my favorite parts of the entire thing, which is just really getting together with with a whole bunch of other engineers that have a passion for Erlang and getting somewhat drunk and chatting about code. So how is it kind of structured? Because it sounds like if you still keep the size of that 120 people that you had the first year, do you have multiple instructors kind of walking around? Or is it smaller group? Is it smaller classroom groups? and Or is it just one giant auditorium where everybody's kind of in the one area at the same time and just people wandering around working to help anybody who needs it? It's actually the second one. We found we actually limit all the airline camps to 120. Usually we end up going around between 80 and 100 is kind of a sweet spot. And the way that it works is there are a bunch of people walking around the entire time. So when people get stuck, we go to them and help. And then we've also got a really nice system for kind of the people sitting next to each other to help each other out. So one of the ways that we kind of gauge things is when people are standing in the back of the room and you can kind of see what everybody's looking at and you can tell if they're engaged or if they're looking at Facebook or something else. And we've got a system now that is just really engaging for everybody. So basically we, we try to keep it 80 to 100 is a sweet spot because the size is not too big. With the amount of people that we have there, we can cover everything. The room that people are in is not like this massive thing. So it's still somewhat personal. And we keep the cost really low, so we basically make no money on it. So our goal is just to make enough money so that we can get to wherever we're going, cover the hotel for two nights, and cover the venue. And if we have some left over, put that into the after party. And so in order to keep that price down to around a little over 100 bucks, we need to have about that many people. And this is, a lot of these questions are self-interesting to me because I registered for the one down in Austin coming up in October this year of 2014, and I'm looking forward to it, and part of this was just more of sneak peek on my part of how it's set up, but also help announce it to anybody else who's interested in getting into Erling and wants to go check it out. We definitely, I definitely appreciate it. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's a ton of fun. You can kind of go on Twitter and search Airline Camp and sort of see what people in the past have thought. It's a blast. People really enjoy it. And I feel it's one of my favorite things to do because I think we've just got a really great system and people walk away really understanding OTP to a new level more than they get, I think, sometimes out of reading because by the end of it, you've written a lot of code and you have all these examples to bring away with you as well which I think is really powerful. When people start to go home and try to write other things, they can always refer back to what they were kind of shown in the class. Yeah. Do you guys get a lot of repeat attendees with people who have attended a previous year and then coming back and either as a refresher for themselves or to kind of follow along and then kind of be that person next to another person? Or do you find most of these people are new each year as well? We get a few repeat attendees. Most of the time, what the repeat people do is help us start another airline camp. So Brian, who's helping us with the Austin airline camp, was an attendee in Nashville. Brian from Nashville was an attendee in Chicago. So actually, all of the airline camps that have uh, we've had since the first one have been people that came from previous airline camps, liked it, and thought, hey, I want to bring this to my town. As far as having people repeat, We've been in Chicago, in Boston, in Spain, in Holland, the Netherlands, in Texas, in Tennessee. So they're kind of spread around the world. So it's we pick up very much a local crowd. And then I would say about three quarters is local. And then we've had people fly in from Thailand and Russia and all over Europe and some pretty far-flung places, which is great. But yeah, the repeats are usually not so many. And... The most significant repeats are the folks that help us put on the subsequent ones, because that's basically how this keeps going. Okay, that sounds really neat, and I'm really looking forward to it, and just getting more in-depth with that, because I'm on one of the teams that don't use Erlang as much at work, but want to dig into it and have enjoyed what exposure I've gotten at work and everything else I've played with. So, I don't know if this is kind of springing you on this at the last minute, but as we were talking, I saw an email come through with the for the Twitter account for the Erling user group down here that we have admit with the just how Twitter gives their 
Here's what here's what you missed might have missed in the past few days, but it looks like you, there's also an Erling conference in Chicago coming. There is, yes. So one of the guys that participated in in the Erlang user group here heavily and came to our first Erlang camp, his name's Garrett Smith. He's definitely become a, a well known voice in the community and particularly here in Chicago. Really sharp guy, and he started putting on the Erlang Chicago conferences. He's really when I moved to Seattle, Garrett really stepped in and kind of took over, I think, as lead of the Chicago community and in a lot of ways has done a better job than I ever did. So he's really rocking and rolling. Just from everything you said about the Chicago one, it sounds like there's a great community up there in Chicago for anybody who makes their way there at any given point for anything else. It seems like something to be able to check out if they can make it and just get to meet some of those other people. We have a phenomenal community out here. We've also got Dave Thomas has been up here doing his go-to conferences, and Ryan Miller of Strange Loop fame has been working with him as well. And they've got a thing called Lambda Jam, which is coming up in July, the 22nd and 23rd here in Chicago. I'll be speaking at it, but it's Closure, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, and F Sharp, which is kind of the latest thing I've been playing with. But yeah, that's here in Chicago, and it just the community of functional programming here in Chicago is unbelievable. It's really over the last, I don't know, 10 years, has just steadily grown every single year. Is that Preg Dave Thomas or is that Big Dave Thomas? Because I've heard there's a couple of Dave Thomases, and I think there may even be another one. No, it's not Preg Dave Thomas. It's Eclipse Dave Thomas and Object Mentor Dave Thomas. Okay. I've heard Preg Dave Thomas, Big Dave Thomas, and I think I've even heard of other ones. So I was wanting to make sure, for those listening, that they know which Dave Thomas we're actually talking about. I think that if you want your son to become successful in our industry, you should name him Dave Thomas. <laughs> Possibly. That's, that seems like there's a big trend there. Yeah, for sure. Okay, it sounds like we've covered most, or we've covered a lot, so I want to know if there's anything else that you would like to plug. Upcoming appearances, places you're going to be presenting at in the future. Other places they can find you besides signing up for Erlang Camp and checking you out and getting to meet you there, or just anything in general that you think the people listening would appreciate and find useful. Yeah, absolutely. So the Lambda Jam coming up here in Chicago, 22nd, 23rd. We just started talking with Manning, Richard Carlson, Eric Merritt, and I about doing a second edition of our book because there's been some really, I think, powerful additions to the language that we'd love to cover. So We'll figure that out. I don't know if we're going to do it yet. Writing a book is, is one heck of a commitment, but I'd really like to do it. So we'll see how that goes. And then back in March, I launched DevOps.com with some partners. And so, you know, that's not really functional programming related, but certainly DevOps has become a big thing in the with programming, whether you do functional or imperative or OO or whatever. So that's another place that people can find me here and there. Those two things sound like some things that could be interesting to get you back on for another episode in the future to talk about the enhancements to Erlang for OTP and everything that's coming down. If you guys start to, or do not decide to start to tackle that book, as well as kind of get you on and talk about, I guess, the DevOps with Erlang side as well, since we didn't get to cover that. Yeah, for sure. Because it seems like that's a whole different style of of DevOps using Erlang when you are able to essentially attach to live running processes and introspect and trace through the system yeah. instead of just, well, okay, well, here's a deployment and we've got some other metrics we may or may not be able to instrument. Yeah, absolutely. That is one of the most mind-blowing aspects. You know, when you first see that, I think it just really uh, startles people. It's like, I can do what? And then, wait, where am I running? And which process? Okay, so I'm actually over there now? It's just, yeah, that's great. And yeah, certainly there are implications for how we deal with things. Although, I think attaching to the live running process and production definitely needs some guardrails put around it because I've caused and watched people cause calamitous things in production by not being judicious about that particular bit of power. You make sure they have the uh, Spider-Man session, right? Yep. Remember, yep. great power comes great responsibility. You got it. So where can people find you online if they want to follow you? What's the best way for them to see what's going on, keep up to date, follow your blog post, and everything else? 
blog.earlware.org. We still keep that going. There's some really cool projects on Earlware still. And then you can follow us at Airline Camp on Twitter. And then on Twitter, I am Martin J. Logan, which is pretty easy. So you can, you can find me there. We'll make sure to put links to everything in those, everything you mentioned in the show notes. And then we'll get that blog entry that you're writing up in the show notes as well. So that, since it sounds like that should be done by the time this airs as well. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, I would like to thank Martin for giving us time to join me today. It was a real pleasure talking with you today. Thanks a lot, Proctor, and I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'll I'll have to get you back at some point, and I look forward to actually meeting you in person down in Austin in October. Same here. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.